0: Welcome to Febrile, a cultured podcast about all things infectious disease. We use consult questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I'm your host, Sarah Dong. I am a combined adult and pediatric ID fellow. And here on Febrile, we use patient cases and consult questions to learn about high yield ID topics. We present pieces of the story of a patient's case and pause along the way to hear from our guest consultant. I have our usual disclaimer that all presented patients on this podcast are inspired by patient experiences but cases are constructed or altered and de-identified for learning purposes. And I'm so excited. I love having a co-host. So today I'm joined by Frances. So I'm going to let her introduce herself and our guest today.
1: Thanks so much, Sarah. Hi, everyone. I'm Frances Yu. I'm an internal medicine attending physician at Cambridge Health Alliance. I also love the field of infectious diseases, and I'm so thrilled to introduce my dear friend and mentor, Dr. Luanne Brunamurtha. Dr. Brunamurtha is a Division Chief of Infectious Diseases, Medical Director of Infection Prevention at Cambridge Health Alliance, and Assistant Professor at Harvard Medical School. CHA is a small academic hospital system that serves the North Boston metro area across two campuses in Cambridge and Everett. It is unique as one of the few major publicly funded safety net healthcare systems in the state and serves as a main care provider for some of the most diverse patient groups. Dr. Bruna Murtha received a DO in medicine at the University of Medicine and Dentistry in New Jersey and completed internal medicine residency at St. Vincent's Medical Center in New York. Subsequently, she completed an Infectious Diseases Fellowship at Boston University Medical Center. She joined the Department of Medicine faculty at CHA in 1991 and has since focused on hospital epidemiology, infection prevention, antimicrobial stewardship, and quality improvement. She is a sought-after educator and provides teaching to students and residents She has also provided mentorship to quite a few residents who have gone on to careers in infectious diseases. She is truly the consummate physician leader with her work showcased in various news and academic publications, including this case that was featured in Boston Magazine. Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you, Francis. That was a really kind introduction. And, and Sarah, thank you for inviting me and, uh, to this great podcast, which I've enjoyed tremendously. I want to applaud you on your efforts to keep trainees and residents and all internists uh, up to date and engaged in this great field.
0: Oh, thank you. Um, And so as everyone's favorite culture podcast, I have to ask, um, we'd love to hear a little piece of culture that you could share that brings you happiness.
2: Oh, that's a great question. And um, now that we're in 2021, I've had to change some of my... um, some of the things I really enjoyed to do in the past, and I've really focused on doing things outdoors. And the and lately, what I'm trying to do is master the game of golf. I want to become a better golfer, and I'm concentrating on the short game because it took me a few real uh, years to realize if you can improve your short game, you can tremendously improve your score. You don't have to be a long driver.
0: I know so little about golf that I'm not sure I don't really know what that means. You can explain it to me later and you'll be caught up on golf. Well, we'll go out on the golf course someday and I'll show you what I mean. The weather is quite nice now. Um, and so our consult question today is about a patient with unremitting fever. So I'll throw it over to Francis. Okay, great.
1: So we have an elderly male with hypertension, diabetes mellitus type 2 benign prostatic hypertrophy, BPH, who presented to the emergency department in October with six days of fevers, sweats, chills, fatigue, myalgias, and weakness. He began to experience generalized myalgias and arthralgias and believed that he was coming down with the flu. He progressively became more tired and needed to sleep all day due to feeling so fatigued. He was so weak that his partner could barely get him out of his chair. His temperature at home was 101.5 Fahrenheit, despite taking Tylenol regularly. He was also shivering and sweating. He noticed that he was only urinating a little, despite trying to drink a lot of fluids. And his partner noticed that he wasn't thinking so well and felt that his brain was a little fuzzy. He denied shortness of breath, cough, sore throat chest or abdominal pain, dysuria, hematuria, diarrhea, or rash. On admission, his vital signs, his temperature was 98.6 Fahrenheit or 37 Celsius, heart rate 87, respiratory rate 18, blood pressure 117 over 78, and his oxygen saturation was 100% on room air. His physical exam was relatively reassuring. He was oriented, non-toxic appearing. He did have some redness in his eyes. However, the rest of his complete exam was also reassuring, including cardiopulmonary, abdominal, neurologic, and skin exam. So Luann, what are your thoughts so far and what additional questions are you interested in?
2: Thanks, Francis. So we have a sixty-ish-year-old gentleman who. Um has a history of diabetes, so that always raises some level of concern on my part with regards to hyperglycemia and its impact on um, the patient's immune system. So that's a consideration, and we know that diabetics are at greater risk for certain infections. So that is something I'll keep uh, in the back of my mind. In addition to that, you mentioned that he had BPH. So of course, that always raises some concern. He might be at greater risk for a urinary tract infection. So could this be urinary or could this be acute is a would be another consideration. His presenting symptoms are rather uh, nondescript, influenza-like illness. This is October. Certainly, it's something that needs to be considered and excluded. It's a little early in the influenza season, but certainly not out of the question. So we, we definitely want to think about influenza and influenza-like illnesses. Certainly, um, uh, you know... Any other uh, sources of um, infection, you know, you always want to make sure common things are common like pneumonia, but you mentioned that on exam, he really didn't have any abnormal respiratory findings. Uh, you didn't notice anything on his skin exam. So it kind of takes out complicated skin and skin structure infections in a diabetic patient, which, you know, could present uh, with a nondescript febrile illness. And you know clearly he's sick. He's shivering. He's febrile. He's diaphoretic, and he's had decreased urine output. So certainly infection is high on my list, and that's what I would want to exclude first you know, I want to do the basic workup for a febrile illness. Like if a patient like this presents to the emergency department, you certainly want to get blood cultures. You want to get um, basic labs, CBC with diff. You want to get a basal metabolic profile. I probably want a comprehensive metabolic profile as well to look at his liver function studies. Could he have some occult intra-abdominal process going on? I know you mentioned your exam was benign, but at times, we find patients with liver abscesses and things of that nature that have a paucity of intraabdominal findings. So, those would be my um, the first things I would think about, and of course, I would, based on that, want to go delve further into his occupation, where he lives, what he's what he's been up to recently? Has he had any sick contacts? Uh, Has he been on antibiotics recently? So so those are some of the other questions I always like to ask my patients when I'm evaluating them early in their course when I think
1: infection's
2: high on the list.
1: Okay, great. That's a pretty comprehensive workup you've presented so far. I'll provide you with some of the labs that came back on admission. Um, So he had a leukocytosis to 38.2 with 20% bands with the rest of the differential unremarkable. He had a thrombocytopenia to 53. He had an anemia to hemoglobin of 8.8. Notably, his BUN was elevated to 101, and his creatinine was elevated to 5.7 with a prior normal renal function. Um, He also obtained, um, we also obtained a creatinine kinase elevated to greater than 3,000. He had an elevated total bilirubinemia to 3.2, mainly direct. His AST was elevated to 129, ALT was elevated to 94. We obtained a chest x-ray which was normal. His influenza A and B PCR were both negative, and this case occurred prior to the COVID pandemic, so there was no COVID PCR. And his urine analysis had more than 10 squames, uh, 5 to 10 WBCs, 0 to 2 RBCs, and 3 to 4 fine granular casts. So quick summary as you've presented, Luann, an elderly patient with hypertension, diabetes, BPH, coming in with six days of these non-specific symptoms, including fevers, sweats, chills, myalgias, fatigue, certainly with these labs concerning for infection, um, leukocytosis with bandemia, thrombotic microangiopathy, acute kidney injury, and rhabdomyolysis. What are your thoughts now?
2: Yeah. So the, these lab results are pretty remarkable. I mean, there's a number of abnormalities uh, that really create a broad differential diagnosis. So what's striking to me here right off the bat is the, um, the marked elevation in his creatinine. So really remarkable acute renal failure. And that in combination with the low platelet count um, and the anemia and the elevated bilirubin really makes me worried about the possibility of a thrombotic microangiopathy. So that's something that is very concerning. Uh, infectious causes that might give you that picture include uh, gastroenteritis with a shigatoxin producing E. coli or uh, Shigella. Now, he didn't have any complaints of diarrhea or really any ab- abdominal complaints whatsoever. So You know, that's not a slam dunk diagnosis, but it's certainly something that I would uh, consider in my differential. He also has a urine with a lot of abnormal findings. doesn't really suggest that it's a urinary tract infection because he really did not have a lot of white cells, but he had, you know, hematuria, probably due to myoglobin. He had an elevated CK. And it's, you know, he could have rhabdo, but... um, he did not have any history of trauma. And although he was in bed at home for several days, I mean, I think that duration of uh, immobility really wouldn't be the cause of rhabdo. So I'd be thinking more that an infectious uh, cause for muscle inflammation as opposed to rhabdo as to explain the elevation in his CK. And then the other thing that... um, is interesting is his transaminases weren't that high, but the bilirubin and predominantly a direct hyperbilirubinemia in uh, conjunction with that renal failure really makes me think of a hepatorenal type syndrome. And there's a couple infectious etiologies of that that I would want to pursue. So I would want to delve a little bit more into what is, has he traveled recently? Has he done any recreational activities? Has he had any exposures to animals? So I think some of those things would be worth pursuing and delving into a little bit more thoroughly.
1: Okay, great. Um, Before we do delve into more of the social history, I do want to give you an update on his course. On hospital day two, the patient spikes a fever to 102.6 Fahrenheit and develops atrial fibrillation. The BUN remains high at 123 and the creatinine slightly worsens to 6.2, and there's a worsening conjugated hyperbilirubinemia. He did have low sodium and low potassium, and his blood cultures were negative since admission. A non-contrast CT of the abdomen and pelvis show no intra-abdominal pathology, hepatobiliary disease, lymphadenopathy, or splenomegaly. What are your thoughts now in terms of the differential diagnosis? Well, this
2: thank you for that further information. So this is really intriguing because typically when we see a patient with acute renal failure, we don't see hypokalemia. We typically see hyperkalemia. So that is cluing me in a little bit further to something that would be rather unusual, but I think it does need to be considered as a potential etiology. And the fact that the blood cultures are negative would also support the possibility of a a disease brought on by a spirochete. And uh, so I think that's something that we want to keep really high on our differential diagnosis. Certainly, we also do want to consider the possibility of lymphoma. And um, going back to the anemia, the acute renal failure, I think it would be really helpful to have a blood smear here to make sure that we're not missing a hematologic malignancy and that we've ruled out hemolysis with certainty. Uh, Let's get the thrombotic thrombocytopenia differential off the table here. Uh, And that, if we do that, that would certainly clue me in even more that this is very likely an infection due to a uh, potentially a a rare spirochete. So I really want to, know what the per, uh, differential is on or blood smear is, and really a little bit more social and epidemiologic history would be extremely helpful to further uh, pursue some unusual diagnostic studies that may need, be indicated in this case.
1: Okay, great suggestions. We did a- obtain a blood smear. So the blood smear demonstrated a rare schistocyte, no teardrops or other abnormal forms, neutrophils were toxic appearing, and occasional early myeloid forms were noted, but no blasts were observed. Platelets were of normal size and slightly decreased in number. In addition to your question about more of a social history, the patient is retired and resides in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He has no pets, but reports rats and rabbits in his yard. And he disposed of two dead rabbits five weeks before illness onset, using a grabber tool. He denied any direct contact with the carcasses. Additionally, he reported regularly picking peaches off the ground from fruit-bearing trees in his yard, and he did not use gloves or wash his hands and denied consuming fruit from the ground. He denied any other animal contact. His travel history was notable for a three-day trip to Martha's Vineyard in September, and he denied any known tick bites. How does the rest of this information change your thinking about the case?
2: That's really important information. Thank you, um, Francis, for that. Well, first let's go back to the peripheral smear. So the fact that he did not have prominent schistocytes on his blood smear, we've essentially excluded hemolysis and eliminated a microangiopathic hemolytic disease as the cause for his uh, presentation. Um, so now I'm really convinced that this is really likely infection. And with the further history of, uh, well, travel to Martha's Vineyard, that that's Germain here because Martha's Vineyard uh, is an island off the coast of Cape Cod, Massachusetts, and it has a very high tick population. Uh, Lyme disease is very prevalent there. And where you have Lyme disease in Massachusetts, you also need to consider other diseases like anaplasmosis, co infection, or babesiosis. We've essentially excluded babesiosis because he didn't have hemolysis on his blood smear. And So I I think that's pretty much excluded. Um, You know, this would be a very unusual presentation for Lyme disease, but another zoonosis that has been reported from Martha's Vineyard um, is tularemia. And tularemia can be acquired by a tick bite. He did not have a knowledge of of a tick bite, but you know, we all see many patients with Lyme disease or another tick-borne disease that really do not have a history of a tick bite. So we can't rely on that. If you have that history, it's great, but we often don't, or we're unable to substantiate that history from many of our patients with uh, proven tick-borne diseases. Um, there was a report several years ago on tularemia acquired in Martha's Vineyard, and it was actually um, landscapers that acquired tularemia. and if my memory serves me correctly, it was the um, the bacteria was being airborne as the landscapers were mowing the lawn on Martha's Vineyard. And they actually inhaled the bacteria and they got sick from it. And so that you know, it's something, I don't think that's what's going on here, but, it, it, you know, travel's always important in our special field of ID. So, we want to make sure we exclude the likely things there. And and um, and so, I don't think he, he fits any of these, but it's something to consider in the differential. Some other information that you shared with me, um, too, that I'm really uh, now convinced that, given that he has acute renal failure, hyperbilirubinemia, a nonspecific febrile illness, and renal failure with sodium wasting and potassium wasting is really almost pathognomonic of leptospirosis. And although the leptospirosis is a very uncommon disease in Massachusetts, uh, we're getting a very good environmental history here. He disposed of rabbits in his yard. I think the rabbits could have been the source of either direct inoculation or indirect inoculation. I'm not really sure. He denied handling the rabbits, but it doesn't mean that he didn't inadvertently contaminate himself. Um, he was very careful not touching them. And he was very clear with me that he wrapped up the carcasses very carefully in plastic um, but it's certainly possible. But he also had a lot of rats in his yard. And so you, you have to assume that the rats contaminated the soil, perhaps the fruit that he often picked off the ground and disposed of. And he could have inadvertently touched his mucous membranes or his conjunctiva and acquired leptospirosis in, in that fashion. And and we do know that rats are the major source of leptospirosis in in um. You know, industrialized areas. Um, so really it was his environmental history and his presentation and, and really the hyperbilirubinemia and that characteristic uh, renal failure with sodium and potassium wasting that clued me in to the real possibility of leptospirosis. And that led us to further diagnostic studies to rule that out. You know, Leptospirosis does not grow in blood cultures. It can be grown in the clinical microbiology laboratory with special media that most hospitals do not have. And it's a very slow-growing organism. It could take weeks to months to isolate, even with proper media. So it's not uh, the way to establish a diagnosis. So to establish a diagnosis, it really hinges on a couple things. You can do serology. IgM serology, either by ELISA or an immunofluorescence assay. And our clinical lab has to send this to a reference lab. We don't do this in-house. And we did do that. We also um, ordered um, blood to be sent through our state lab to CDC for what's considered the gold standard for diagnosis, and that is the microagglutination test, looking at an antibody response to different antigens of serovars of leptospirous species. And it's a very um, sophisticated and cumbersome test that's not readily available in most places. But the CDC does do it. In addition to that, they also do PCR testing. And it's still somewhat debatable. Um, There's advantages and disadvantages to both. But the MAT, the microagglutination test, is still considered the gold standard. Uh, It does take time, although I believe we received our results in about a week from the CDC. We started empiric therapy. We did not wait, recognizing that we weren't going to have a quick turnaround um, because all these tests were sent out to reference laboratories. And so, it's uh, I think the recommendation at this point in time is to is to use all three modalities if you're considering a diagnosis of leptospirosis. So, serology, an IgM, either by ELISA or uh, indirect immunofluorescence, PCR, and that's both blood and urine PCR, as well as uh, the microagglutination test done at the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta.
1: Okay, great. In terms of our patient case, as you mentioned, um, we did not wait for these test results to come back prior to starting therapy. The tick-borne testing was negative. The blood cultures were negative. Um, We started empiric IV ceftriaxone one gram daily. And the patient actually improved and was discharged on hospital day seven with doxycycline 100 milligrams two times daily to complete a total seven days of treatment. I understand you saw him in clinic four days after discharge, and he continued to show improvement in symptoms and laboratory values. As you mentioned, some of the lab tests that were sent, his leptospira IgM antibody obtained on hospital day three was non-reactive. And a repeat leptospira IgM obtained during follow up five days after discharge was positive. Additional confirmatory studies that you mentioned performed at the CDC included a positive urine PCR targeting lipoprotein L32 and a positive MAT titer to L interrogans icterohemorrhagia serogroup, as well as serovar RGA and serovar. Mancarso. So Luann, how do you reconcile between the different antibody results obtained on hospital day fo- day three Sorry, and after follow-up?
2: Yeah, so it's not uncommon early in the course of this disease to have negative testing. So it, it should be repeated. I mean, you could also, um, you know, you could also do acute and convalescent serology looking for a fourfold rise in titer as well. Um, So that's another retrospective way of establishing a diagnosis. So it's not uncommon early on to have a negative IgM um, assay. The other problem with the IgM assays, like we're familiar with with many other diseases, um, there are possibilities of false positives and cross-reactivity with other organisms. And in patients who have had prior leptospirosis, their IgM antibody may remain positive for many, many years, as opposed to a lot of other diseases where we often expect the IgM to fall. So you can't necessarily rely on an IgM Positivity to confirm an acute infection in somebody who may have had prior leptospirosis, uh, and that could happen in some areas of the world where leptospirosis is far more common, like in India, where they see it uh, frequently. In fact,
1: okay, well, thanks, Luanne, for you know discussing all these details. What an interesting case! So it sounds like our patient had leptospirosis. Can you tell us a bit more about this disease?
2: Yeah, so leptospirosis is um, not a common disease in the U.S., um, and unfortunately, there was a period of time where uh, it wasn't even being reported in, from every state, so we don't really have good data on the incidence of this disease. But recent data does suggest that it is increasing uh, in frequency it doesn't surprise me. We're seeing an increase in all sorts of zoonotic diseases. And I think, you know, this is where global warming probably has a significant impact. We're seeing, you know, really dynamic weather patterns. And we are seeing periods during the year where we're having much more rainfall and precipitation. And in fact, in the October that he presented to the hospital, it was a very rainy fall. So it's, Climate change may, in fact, be playing a significant role in this disease. Um, So I think we're going to see that with other zoonoses as well. That was an interesting aspect of this illness. So I expect we're going to continue to see more and we're going to continue to see cases um, uh, increase. Now, the funny thing about leptospirosis is... 90% of the time, it's a mild disease, and we probably see it and don't even recognize it. And people recover without the need for treatment. So not all people with leptospirosis are going to require hospitalization or even come close to developing a severe illness like our patient had. Our patient had what's called Wheels disease, uh, and that's specific for the hepatic manifestations of hyperbilirubinemia associated with acute renal failure. And only about 10% of patients that get infected with leptospirosis will actually develop this clinical presentation. This is a severe illness, and if not treated, it can result in death. And some patients that develop uh, Wheels disease can go on to develop um, pulmonary hemorrhage, and uh, that could lead to respiratory distress syndrome and ultimately death. So we, you know, you don't want it to proceed to that. Uh, But by and large, most of these cases are not going to require hospitalization. And we probably don't. It's probably grossly underdiagnosed because I think a lot of patients probably recover without knowing what they had. So uh, I think we need to be aware of this particular severe presentation of illness. Uh, We believe, based on what we know, although the literature is limited and there's not a lot of new literature about this disease, we do believe when patients are sick that antimicrobial therapy is certainly important in helping them recover and get better sooner. But obviously, in mild cases that go undiagnosed, people do recover. Certainly, age probably played a role in this. If it was a younger person, maybe it wouldn't have gone on to this severe form of disease. It's also a common disease that we see associated with uh, adventure sports and people that have contact with fresh water. So there's been reports of disease in triathletes. Participating in competitions in Florida, in the Midwest. Uh, there's often reports coming from Hawaii. Pro- probably Hawaii has the most cases in the US associated with waterfalls. Also, Hawaii probably does a better job with reporting cases. So it might be a little bit confounded because their reporting system seems to be a little bit more comprehensive in that state and it's been more consistent over the years. I understand now in Massachusetts it is reportable again but it's passive surveillance so it only gets reported if you actually get a test and it's positive or you happen to have a conversation with dph what you know uh, about a case like this that's the only way they really know most of these patients are not getting tested so there's the the reporting system is is not ideal it just so happens in october of uh, 2019 when this patient did develop his illness, there were reports about an increase in canine leptospirosis in Massachusetts. People don't typically get sick from their dogs. Certainly, it's possible veterinarians are at a little bit higher risk, but it's not a significant risk. And although dogs often are immunized against leptospirosis, it doesn't preclude the ability of dogs to excrete the spirochete in their urine. So it's still possible that a a veterinarian or a family member could acquire it through a pet, but it's just not that common. You know, and and certainly there's some occupations uh, beyond veterinarians. Farmers, uh, certainly, greater risk. Uh, fishermen at greater risk. Anybody who has contact with water. So certainly, people that work with in in city in their city public health department might be at risk. So there's occupational risks that need to be considered as well. And you know, I think one idea I had about the potential here in this individual is there were at the time there were a lot of rats being recognized in Cambridge and the area because there's been a lot of construction and there, well, there still is a lot of construction. So, I think the rat habitat has been dispersed and as a result, maybe putting people that live in more residential areas at greater risk. Also, in I think it was in 2020, the city of Cambridge established a curbside composting service You wonder whether that is attracting more rats to the streets to take advantage of what's in those compost containers that they may be able to access. So it's a lot of thoughts that I had at the time about this case, and I learned from speaking with one of the environmental public health officers for the city of Cambridge that there is no systematic process for doing surveillance of rats for leptospirosis. But maybe with some more public health funding, we could think about that in the future.
0: And you talked a a bit as we went along about sort of highlighting the labs that really stood out to you. Is there anything from physical exam that would um, stand out to you that you think the learners would benefit from thinking about?
2: Yes, that's a great question, Sarah. You know, I I do recall he had tremendous myalgias in his slower extremities, and that is, in the literature, that's been reported as a rather characteristic uh, feature of leptospirosis, you know, to the point that he had trouble getting out of bed. I mean, he was fatigued, but he just had tremendous pain in his muscles. And so I think it was the muscle inflammation associated with his illness that just gave him tremendous pain. Uh, so, that that is commonly described in the literature. You know, I think his atrial fibrillation was probably a function of his age, the fever, and the fact that he had hypertension. But we do know that you can get myocarditis uh, and cardiac arrhythmias with, with leptospirosis. So, although I think in his case, it was more brought on by the uh, catabolic situation he was in, that's something to keep in mind, that... Um, We do know that uh, leptospirosis, like other spirochetes, right? If we think about Lyme disease, really has multi-system, multi-manifestations, affects many parts of the body. And it's true with leptospirosis as well. And in fact, it can cause um, central nervous system problems. It can cause aseptic meningitis. Our patient didn't have any symptoms that supported that. It can also cause uveitis, just like syphilis and Lyme disease. Um, And that could be a later manifestation, something that he could have presented with even after his treatment. Um, So that's something to keep in mind. It really does affect many systems of the body and many organs.
0: Yeah. And then something we always talk about, at least for test questions, is the conjunctival suffusion and red eyes. Um, But I I think, at least in some of the bigger series, it's like a quarter of the patients. So maybe not... (laughs) the some the thing that's going to stand on every single patient. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like to end by asking you guys to tell us, you know, something that you think we missed or, or any other learning points. I wanted to say for for me, I when I was thinking about and reading about leptospirosis, you know, a lot of the multi-organ manifestations are basically from the dissemination of these spirochetes everywhere. And I I don't know why I didn't ever realize this, but patients with leptospirosis who are starter on therapy can also have a Jarisch-Herxheimer reaction similar to syphilis. And I think whenever we hear that term, we think of syphilis. But it could be in a patient who starts antimicrobial therapy for lepto that they'd have a similar reaction. Um, so maybe I'll throw it over to Francis and see if there's a learning point or any sort of final closing thoughts that you had.
1: Yeah, thanks, Sarah. Um, Well, I was a second year resident when I admitted this patient overnight. And I think one of the main learning points that came out of this for me was, you know, applying the diagnostic schema for fever and especially unremitting fever. But the second thing that really stuck out to me was such a detailed exposure history that Luann took from the patient. Because on admission, we had asked him if he had any exposure to animals, and he said no. But somehow she <laughs> asked it in such a way that there was disposal, uh, like uh, disposal of these rabbits, but only with the grabber tool, and in such great detail that I think really helped clinch the case. Yeah,
2: yeah. It, it just goes to show in infectious diseases. You know your history really does hinge on a social history, environmental history, animal exposures, and I think it's even going to be more important with global warming, uh, as we see we're seeing now with you know Lyme disease now way up into Canada uh, because of global warming. So you know I think we pride ourselves in doing a good job with that, and you know. It, this is a case that really make really demonstrates the importance of that history, and, and I guess you know I, I probably want to make the point that the microbiology of this um, organism is really confusing, right? There's, there's the species, there's the serogroups and the serovars, and you know leptospira interrogans is uh, the major pathogenic species, and the icto, hemorrhagiae is the serogroup. And there, I think there's something like 25 serogroups, not all of which are pathogenic. And to complicate things even more, there are 250 serovars. And the, why is this important? Well, it goes back to many years of, the, of when we had pre-molecular ways to diagnose things. Everything was based on serology. So don't get caught up. It's rather confusing. Don't get caught up with it. It's probably not that important, except to say when you know what the serogroup is, you might be able to pin down the geography of where the infection was acquired or how the infection was required. So ictohemorrhagiae, his particular serogroup is really associated with rats. So that's the interesting piece. Don't get too worried about the microbiology nomenclature because it's really confusing and it's likely to change now that we're moving more to molecular diagnosis and getting away from these serologic ways to establish uh, diseases. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you guys so much for coming on the show. This was an amazing case. And I feel like we taught we put left leftist process on a lot of differentials, and it's usually not the answer. Um, so this is a really great case for everyone to hear from. Um so thanks again for coming on.
1: Thank you so much for having us.
0: It's my pleasure, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you, Francis. Thanks for listening, everyone. What a great case. And thanks to Francis for being such an amazing co-host. If you would like to be a co-host for a future episode or have topic or guest suggestions, please get in touch. You can find Febrile on Twitter or Instagram. And don't forget about our website, febrilepodcast.com for more information, our post-episode consult notes with links to references, and a collection of ID infographics. I'm very excited to have a new series of episodes coming up, and I can't wait to tell you more, so stay tuned. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time.